I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thanks for listening to Cauldron, A History of the World, Battle by Battle. Today we've got a great episode on the Battle of Arsuf in the Third Crusade, the King's Crusade. And to help us kind of work our way through this uh, pretty wild event, this wild story from the deserts of uh, the Levant, is a gentleman named Angelo. He's a really... uh, Kind of a, uh, a self-made expert on arms and armor of the Middle Ages. Uh, I've known him for a few years now, and he's a pretty interesting guy. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Angelo, why don't you uh, say hello to the people and tell them a little bit about how you got into arms and armor and the Middle Ages and, and just military history in general. Well, uh, hello there. I started with watching movies and playing video games about, you know, uh, say like Braveheart. I watched Kingdom of Heaven growing up. Those those medieval films, even though they're not exactly medieval, like they they're not accurate as for the events that unfolded, uh, nor is their armor. But they still got me interested from a young age. You know, role playing and like just as a kid playing around the backyard with swords and armor. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Kingdom of Heaven. I remember that movie very little. I loved that movie. I thought it was awesome, but I I really don't remember it that well. Was that basically just all made up? Uh, yeah. Well, the story of Balian, I think his name was of Ibelin. He, he, no, he that that was made up. Uh, blacksmith did not become uh, a great noble lord overnight. No. Oh, really? That didn't happen. Oh, jeez, <laughs> no, shit. That didn't happen. I, I thought it was kind of par for the course for the Middle Ages. The arms and armor, like the costumes of the movie, was very good, though. They did a very good okay. job. Um. The story itself, obviously, it was, it was, uh, you know, they took some elements from history. Uh, obviously, the 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 recapture of Jerusalem by Saladin, and but with the characters themselves, they just kind of made them more interesting okay. and right. threw in a love story, like everyone has to do. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, see Peter Jackson in The Hobbit. Yeah, for exactly. Throwing in unnecessary love stories. Exactly. But, um, okay, so. In the Middle Ages, you just kind of developed an interest in this in particular, or is there some kind of influence or, or, or what about the armor? Uh, the, the armor itself, I, I don't know. I was just always fascinated by the logistics of it. I was also, I, in high school, I took a, a smithing class and a welding class, so I've always been interested in how metal's been worked, and I just find it fascinating how they're able to make, uh, and, and why they made the suits of armor and how like people were able to afford them uh, hundreds of years ago, because to take to make a suit of chainmail or not chainmail, but male armor now uh, would take dozens and hundreds of hours for just one man to make. So they would have to had uh, logistical systems set up that were fairly advanced uh, to be able to produce thousands of sets of hauberks, uh, which are just uh, dresses of male rings woven together. Um, 
over, you know, worn over other layers of clothing. Uh, but those would have taken hundreds of hours to produce. Uh, would have had to withstand the ar- the arms of the day. Um, they, to the, you know, that as best they could. They couldn't be falling apart every five minutes. And I always just thought that was always fascinating. And then once you get into the later period of medieval history, the plate armor that was developed and how they were able to produce entire plates of armor, fit them properly, and build thousands of suits uh, to arm entire armies across all of Europe and how, you know, the techniques varied from state to state, town to town, and just, you know, the whole medieval life itself, you know, you would, you from down from the peasant to the Lord and what was their role, how, how would that role really fit within the greater society and how, who, who, you know, how really did you muster an army that was thousands of men, uh, thousands of men working together? They all had different roles. Uh, so that was always very fascinating. And like, so I, I've always wondered, you know, okay, obviously you can make a movie about anything. You, you know, you could buy anything now. Uh, these, the production uh, budgets of these movies are astronomical. You know, they're huge. You know, they're millions of dollars. So they can pay to have anything they want, yeah, however yeah. they want. So it's all about, so I've always been fascinated with how this would how would this work in life really so in the past few years I've just on my personal time been researching a lot yeah. um, YouTube's an interesting source dangerous very, but dangerous interesting, but interesting yeah, 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 yeah interesting it. nonetheless because there's a lot of YouTubers out there who've taken it upon themselves to really you know try these pieces of armor on you know test like will a warhammer you know crash through a uh, a chest plate or yeah. or a uh, longbows yeah. you know really pierce through a plate of armor uh, there's other people who tend to make their own armor on on YouTube and they, they show tutorials that, and yeah, it's yeah. just and it's insane to watch them weave uh, rings of metal together and just watch how long that process takes and then to really think about okay so if someone in a medieval setting was to do that you know, lack of food, lack of water, lack of uh, infrastructure or, you know, and security. Like the standard that we are accustomed to in right. terms of, you know, their food is probably like one meal a day of meat and then the rest is like gruel or whatever the exactly. hell it is. Um, you know, they're yeah. probably sleeping poorly, right. you know, for however long they're sleeping. And water they have to boil yeah. before they can, or, you know, whatever it is, their whole process, their way of life is so much more difficult that, the fact that they had any time to, let alone the hundreds of man hours that it would be needed in order to make this stuff is pretty. I mean, it's impressive. It's right. It's hard to really wrap your head around. And, and that's just to to uh, to take raw metal and turn it into uh, a piece of armor. Just to make the raw metal itself is a whole new process yeah, that I mean, would require like a whole I, I, system of lands and estates. Earlier, uh, you mentioned um, you said something that I thought was pretty funny. Uh, how how did the first person make the first hammer? You know, like yeah. how, like you yeah. need a hammer to make a hammer. So right. how the hell did the first it's, guy? It's either you take a hammer. It's either you're taking a bronze hammer that you happen to cast forge. You yeah. know, because uh, that's how you could work bronze. You didn't have to temper it like steel and all that. But or you took a rock to it. It's like Which you, is just you, oh god. You're 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 pounding a a bloom of metal that which is just molten. You know, it, it, you threw a bunch of dirt, 
you threw a bunch of dirt into a furnace. You threw a bunch of stone, whatever, you know, clay, whatever it was, threw it into a furnace. You packed in charcoal, layers and layers of charcoal. You throw in more material, throw in another layer of charcoal. You wait hours, you smelt that down, and you got a little ball of metal. Then you got to forge that into a iron bar of some sort. Then you gotta, then you gotta work that into another piece of metal that you could further break that into, like tools. Then you'd have to make tools. Then you'd have to make the weapons. Then you'd have to make the armor. And it's the process is just from start to finish. It's it's it, it's inconceivable so that this all became something right. that was done over and over in thousands so of places. So behind the army of tens of thousands was another army of tens of thousands more who, you know, over the course of centuries uh, would work the mines, would work the the furnaces, would work the smithies. And then then you think what's interesting is at a certain point in time in the Middle Ages, you have that whole system coming together and uniting in one cause and not just... Uh, saying, all right, today we agree and we're going to go off and, and fight together. But that whole system had to move with it. So when you say that tens of thousands in the army are backed up by the tens of thousands of people who make the army function, they all have to go from Europe on a crusade to the Middle East. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we cover the Battle of Arsuf and the Third Crusade so uh, we're going to take a quick peek at our notes, and then we're going to get really uh, right to it. So the Third Crusade, the, uh, the King's Crusade, which is uh, a nickname that it was given based on the fact that it had a number of European kings at its, in its leadership, is the result of a series of events that were set in motion by Pope Urban II. Um, he gave a uh, what's known as the Council of Claremont. I don't remember when that was. When was the Council of Claremont? Um, anyhow, it was in the late 11th century, um, where Pope Urban II basically declares a holy war on the uh, Muslim states in the Middle East. Um, Basically, the goal was to recapture Jerusalem and the holy sites of Christendom. Uh, And in order to do that, he needed an army, but he needed a united European army. So he wanted the European states to stop fighting each other and wasting their blood and uh, and their treasure and their... uh, um, and their time on fighting each other, and instead to come together and fight uh, the, f- the Muslims. Um, the way that he got them going on that was, first off, through propaganda, declaring that the, the Muslim uh, invaders or the Muslim forces were poorly treating the Christians, uh, whether that be raping, plundering, forcing them to pay unfair taxes, Uh, keeping them from being able to reach their holy sites, or by straight-up lying and saying that they were um, encroaching on on European territory. Um, He also 
promised anyone who went out on crusade and died, uh, or I, I think if they just went on, are you familiar with this? Was it, did they have to die in order to be relieved of all their sins? No, they just had to they go on crusade. Just had to go yeah. on crusade. So he, it's an indulgence. He was uh, a remittance of your sins and a uh, immediate uh, acceptance into heaven if you went on crusade. Yeah, if you took the Holy Cross. Okay. Yeah. So now, if the the first crusade, how successful was that? Uh, it was it was successful in the sense that they took all the cities north of Jerusalem uh, initially uh, fairly easily, uh, but they lost a lot of men along the way, and then they only barely captured Jerusalem uh, because they had a series of failed attacks on the walls. A siege tower burned down. Uh, I think along the way, too, they got lucky that some of the defenders of the cities, certain gate guards, opened up the gates to various cities and towns. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds right. Right, by double-crossing their commanders and uh, allowing the Franks to come in and storm the cities. So at the end of the First Crusade, the Prince's Crusade, um... We have what? What is what is the the map look like now? Uh, now they, you know, only hold. I think Tyre they hold or okay, Montfort. Yeah. Montferrat retook Tyre just before um, the crusade really got going, and then you know it was another two years before uh, the kings of Europe were really able to get to the Crusader states because they. You know, they kind of yep. drag their feet on gathering their forces. Okay, so between the First Crusade and um, and Urban's call to arms, and where our story picks up, and uh, at the beginning of the Third Crusade, there's a number of smaller uh, crusades. There's a Norwegian Crusade. There's a Second Crusade. There's a a couple of different uh, crusades, and each time they're taking a little clump of territory away from the Muslim states. Uh, Eventually capturing Jerusalem, and then I think losing Jerusalem, yep. which is the kind of the uh, basically the engine behind the Third Crusade. Jerusalem, right. Jerusalem is lost, and the uh, warring kings of Europe have to. I mean, how do they go no, about it? Is it the Pope again who? Who pulls them together, or how do they decide to go off and retake? Uh, it was Guy de Lucien's plea uh, to his, basically his family, because they were all related. Okay. The the monarchs as of Europe. Royals do. Yeah. As royals do. So he made a plea to Richard, who was more uh, French than he was English, uh, as, as an identity. Okay. Obviously, he was the monarch of England, uh, but he was a d- descendant of the Norman kings who were based out of France. Um, and, you know, who had territories in Aquitaine and Poitiers, however you say the Poitiers, Poitiers, Poitiers whatever the hell yeah, yeah, that, my French is not great. No, I, uh, and so he made a plea to his family and to the other kings of, uh, of Europe, as in the, you know, including the Holy Roman Emperor, who was the king of Germany. Yeah. Um, and most answered a call, um, various so Italian... Wait, these kings just... Uh, I think France and England are at war at the point when the claim yeah, comes Yeah, they're through. in perpetual warfare And throughout. so they just decide to stop? Uh, well, they have to agree to both leave at the same time. So that's the okay, problem. Is so it's a, it's a staring contest. Right. 
where uh, I'll show you mine if you show me yours kind right. of thing where, okay, you go first. No, 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 you go first. Okay, we'll go at the same time. Right, and they were both familiar with each other because Richard had helped Philip uh, fight against his father, but okay. after he was defeated, he you know had to go back to his father because he was disappointed in the lands he got in France. Um, so he was familiar with who uh, Philip was, but obviously Philip always felt like he had claim over to the French lands more than uh, Richard did since he was the king of England. Which would make sense. Right, yeah, which French would. French king, French lands. Right, and they only got um, most of those lands, uh, partially, like, on the side of England, they only got those lands through marriage uh, south of Normandy for the most part. So okay. uh, it wasn't completely through conquest, but Philip was willing to wage a war of conquest and form a series of alliances to capture back uh, the southern portion of the Angevin Empire in France. Okay. So Guy de Lusignan, uh, or Guy... De Lusignan. De Lusignan, whatever the hell it is. He is frantic. He's losing his kingdom. He calls upon his family, and they also happen to be his intermittent enemies throughout Europe or intermittent enemies of each other. And he uh, he basically, he's looking for uh, uh, a Hail Mary saving grace to come down and not just to protect what he has, but to recapture what he's lost. Yeah, after the after the battle he lost at the Horns of Hattin, he lost Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, then a couple years And who years did he lose this to? Saladin. And, and, and Saladin is... Uh, the he, he's the sultan of the now Ayyubid dynasty that I believe he starts, which is based out of Egypt. Uh, based out of uh, well, it's kind of hard to say, it depends where I mean, he at some you know, he's t- his fleets out of Egypt, a lot of his foods out of Egypt, a lot of the, the productions happening out of Egypt. This is a golden time for Egypt, at you know, they're at their peak, yeah, or they're on a come up. Uh, so I don't know if he was out of Egypt or that he focused out of Egypt because he was on campaign for the majority of his rule. I mean, yeah. he worked out of Damascus quite a bit. Um, that's also, you know, the goal of the Second Crusade was to capture Damascus. Okay. But he defended the city. So uh, Saladin is, uh, he's kind of, he's a Kurd, right, from, uh, yeah. uh, from Iraq. Yeah. So he's using Egyptian forces and... Syrian, if he's in Damascus, he must be using Syrian. Yes. So, so he's somehow he's kind of this um, unifying force within uh, the Muslim armies, I, I, apparently. Yeah, he he unites the Kurds, the Persian uh, lands, the lands in Mesopotamia, okay. uh, and as far as south as Egypt and other you know, Egyptian allies that they had, like the Nubians. and So basically those. what we know as the Middle East, he's kind of pulled them all, right. these little separate groups together and formed one kind of um, state-like army. Yeah, it's it's like the United States of America, but you have yep. the separate states and you have the emirs of those, you know, nations being represented. So basically the noble families of these okay. regions. And when we talk about Saladin, um, before we get into uh, the types of tactics and weapons that these guys used, uh, it's important, I think, to kind of cover their uh, their joint ethos. I guess is the word. So, like the Europeans, they're look they're on a holy war. They're looking to conquer holy territory for 
seemingly holy purposes. And uh, the, the Muslims don't necessarily have that same outlook at first, but by the point that by the time the Third Crusades are happening, Saladin has kind of created this uh, unified jihad. So instead of all the different little Muslim groups declaring jihad on different enemies for different purposes, they have all come together and decided, okay, this is the holy war, this is the holy cause, and we'll fight one giant jihad on these Europeans invading. Uh, yeah, essentially. It was more of an alliance than a unified force because okay. there is several points throughout the three, you know, the first, second, and third crusades where um, he had trouble getting uh, his vassals to send more food, more money, more troops because they felt, you know, they didn't exactly owe allegiance to him, but they, you know, they, uh, beyond like the initial men they had sent. Because okay. after Acre, he needed more men, or during the siege of Acre, he needed more men, but he was having trouble with supplies, and uh, he even had trouble getting the soldiers and cavalrymen themselves not to break after a um, charge by a company of knights, mounted knights with lances, not turning and running just at the sight of... It's an intimidating sight, but... It, it, they were not all united in the cause, like, okay. down to the man. Okay. Just like anything else. Yeah, I, just I mean, like, I'm sure you know, some of the Crusaders were out there just to see the world or... But to, they, were all, they were all united behind the fact that they are 3,000 miles away from home. True. It's true. fight together or die, you know. Yeah. You know, okay. So, so the, they, were, they were united the, in survival. They were unified in circumstance, maybe right. not so much in, um, in, uh, in cause for being Right, there. exactly. Okay. So, all right, uh, let's take a quick break, like, look at our notes again, and then uh, we'll be right back with the actual uh, the Battle of Arsuf and uh, the lead-up to it. We've got Richard the Lionheart, uh, the son of Henry II. Uh, yes. Yep. Plantagenet. Um, so... Richard the Lionheart is this young, fierce, kind of like I—I I imagine a, a star quarterback. Yeah, the ideal noble knight. Yeah, ex- yeah. literally what every uh, every every image that you have of King Arthur—it's actually you're you're imagining Richard the Lionheart. He's mm-hmm. fierce in battle, and yet he seems to be uh, a fairly good king. Although, as we know. He really was never actually a king. He never really did the job. Right. Uh, but in our minds, in our imaginations, Richard the Lionheart, probably because of the the absolute badass name that he has, uh, has come down through history as this great warrior king, you know, the warrior poet yeah. of Braveheart. He won the title in battle, not exactly in the offices back in France. And no, England. yeah, right. I would say he's probably not, uh, it wasn't a, a great accountant, you know, not, no. not maybe not the best. Uh, he was not the greatest economist. Or... No, no. <laughs> um, all right, so that's Richard and then Philip. Philip actually doesn't really, uh, Philip of France doesn't really play a factor in our story. Philip of France, uh, after the Battle of Acre, uh, returns home, right? Yeah, but he leaves behind um, Hugh III, Duke of Burgundy, to represent him and the French forces in the 
uh, conquest of the Levant and then eventually, hopefully, Jerusalem. And what about, uh, so originally setting out from Europe, we had the English, the French, and then there was a Holy Roman Emperor uh, Empire contingent. Yeah. And uh, that was led by the Holy Roman Emperor, correct? Yeah, and that would have, you know, if he had shown up and his full force had shown up, they would have uh, made up the bulk of the Crusader forces. They would have been twice as large as what they were now. Huh. Yeah. And what happened? It was Frederick Barbarossa, right? Or, yeah. Or yeah. Boza? Yeah, he died en route. Uh, fell off his horse into a river and couldn't swim. Couldn't well, he was in the armor, I guess, for some reason, and he couldn't swim. Okay, all right, well, that'll do it. Um, and I think uh, Barboza or Barbarosa means red beard. Yeah, yeah, weird. It, yeah, <laughs> he must have had a hell of a red beard to be nicknamed that. Um, okay, so these three guys they take their armies from Europe. Their plan is to recapture Jerusalem. Along the way, we are going to uh, do what Game of Thrones does and just kind of zip through time and space. Right. Uh, they get to the Middle East, and their first really big, uh, they take a couple of small cities, territories along the way, but their uh, their big target is Acre, the city of Acre. Uh, it's this kind of, uh, I mean, it's a hotbed of, of, uh, of trade and commerce, uh, it's also a really strong military position. So both sides are very uh, contentious about keeping it. Saladin is uh, adamant that the Muslims keep this city. So the fighters on the inside of the city are not likely to give up anytime soon. The forces outside the city of the European, the Crusaders, they are Fierce and ferocious in the assaults that they put up against it. And then they come under siege from Saladin on the other side. Right. So it's kind of like Caesar and Elysia where you've got uh, the besieger being besieged. Right, except in this case, they the besieging uh, army of the city still had access to the sea because uh, the they were able to not be completely engulfed by Saladin, which was a major fault on his part for not, you know, you know, not tightening the siege lines enough to uh, cut out Richard the Lionheart and Philip II, who showed up eight months into the siege or nine months into the siege, whatever it was, landed, and it was a two-week affair after that. It was all over. Huh. Yeah. And w- what happened? So the Crusaders take the city. Um, they capture... A lot of uh, wealthy and aristocratic Muslims inside the city. Yep. And then they enter into negotiations with Saladin. Saladin is prevaricating, but he seems like he's willing to make a deal. What happens to kind of sour that whole thing? Uh, Saladin was late on payments. Uh, payment of money? Money, of, and I, okay. I'm not sure if he delivered all the prisoners that he had taken. Oh, so there was an exchange. Yeah, there was supposed to be an exchange, okay. but he was late. Uh, Richard of Lionheart then killed off many of the soldiers that he had taken capture, uh, taken captive, uh, killed them off, Just and executed. Executed. It was like a all-day affair to execute, I guess, three thousand men, um, one by one, in line. Uh, yeah, because you, yeah. you know what you, I for whatever reason when I hear like military, like an execution like that, I just my mind is so riddled with uh, you know Nazi images that right. I'm thinking a machine gun and a line of people and you just yeah they but, didn't have rifles back in the day but yeah sword it, and when axe. you really go down into it it's all slashing and cutting and right. 3,000 <clears> of them that's a lot of people 
I mean, that's hours of work. That's doesn't sound like a very chivalrous act by young uh, young Richard there. Sounds like more of a dick move if right. you get my meaning. Yeah. Um, so Richard kills a bunch of people. I can't imagine Saladin's too happy about that. No, he he uh, that that kind of gave the Muslim forces. Um, more of a reason to to fight on now is to to um, expel the infidels who just ex- executed three thousand of their you know own men. It kind of also made them remember the the sack of Jerusalem a hundred years ago, and the, the you know it's looking like this is just gonna be a repeat. Um, and then they you know it's just these are bloodthirsty guys. We got to join together to uh, as we, if you can, needed more of a right, reason. Yeah, they could not end the uh, offensive against the Crusaders now, so this continued the fight all the way south hmm. uh, to uh, Arsuf next, and then Jaffa, and Ascalon, and then. Well, actually, that's interesting. So that brings us to Arsuf. Why were why was Arsuf a battlefield? So what happened between Acre Falls? Saladin and, and Richard have their falling out. Hmm. The uh, decision to make a truce or anything like that is off the table. Uh, Richard is on the march. Where is he headed? He's heading to Jaffa and Ascalon, or, you know, ho- hopefully to Jaffa. And then from there, he can either decide to cut inland to Jerusalem okay, or go south to Ascalon and capture that major port. That was a pretty important for... Saladin to move all his men and resources from Egypt into the Levant because that was the fastest route coming out of uh, Cairo or whatever you know ports along. Okay, so his his idea here is um, if Jerusalem's the ultimate target, he could go through Jaffa and try and capture the target quickly, or he could play for the long con. And it's knowing that taking Jerusalem might take a while, he, he could try and uh, make it more difficult for Saladin to protect the city before he attacked it. Well, he realizes he's a, he's a dinghy in the ocean, surrounded okay. by enemies. So the, the, the ocean is the enemies, he's the dinghy. He could survive, but he's got to be careful. He's gotta, you and know. he's also got to move quickly because right. Philip, uh, his former ally, Philip of France, has left at this point, correct? Correct. So he's got pressure uh, knowing now. Now, he just decided to go home. Yeah, he decided after the siege. You know, they, they had a falling out while they were dividing up the spoils of the war in the city. They were uh, cordoning off the city each Yeah, each, each business. Party took a certain amount of the right, city. Right, okay. right. You know, you now had the income from that business. Okay. Um, so they were dividing that up. Uh, they had a falling out. Obviously, well, they never really were closest to friends no, for the past three years. They were working together, and so right. Philip goes home and uh, takes most of his men with him. Takes a lot of his men, but also this is a concern for Richard because, well, Richard and his men are in the Middle East. Right. Philip and his army is back home, maybe encroaching on his land. Right, because he so Philip fulfilled the agreement. He went on crusade. He doesn't have to stay there now. He yeah. doesn't have to stay until they capture Jerusalem. That, so I don't Philip think read the, the fine print, and yeah. Richard was more of a broad yeah. stroke. I'll sign it and just but, go. You know, Richard, looking for glory, uh, was more than willing to stay and command the army. Well, um, it's also got to be appealing to him now. 
uh, the, it was originally a triumvirate of three who were going to retake the Holy City, right. and now he'll go in the history book as the only yeah. general who take or the only yeah. king who retakes Jerusalem. He was looking to become Richard the Great. Yeah. Okay. In this endeavor, ended up becoming Richard the Lionheart. Okay, you which know. is still just, not a just bad, as good. Uh, you not know, a bad yeah. secondary nickname. Okay, so now um, before we get into the breakdown of of the actual army on the move. Uh, let's take a quick break. Okay, so Richard and his army, they're on the move. Their uh, final target is Jerusalem. Along the way, they want to either take Jaffa or Ascalon. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they've got to get across enemy territory along the deserts of uh, modern-day Israel. And in that, uh, in that land, there's very little water, there's very little supply station, there's really no uh, guaranteed safe route for Richard and his army to take. And to try and ensure that he suffer as few casualties as possible, because if you think about it, he's got no way of reinforcing. There's no real... Um, there's no pipeline of men. It's not like when you're campaigning in France from England, you can just throw a few guys on a, on a troop carrier and hop over the channel. Uh, over here in, uh, in the Middle East, in the Levant, he's got no guarantee of men, so he's got to try and keep them as tightly protected and packed as possible. How does he get from Acre to Jaffa or Ascalon or any of the cities he's trying to get to? Well, taking his time and learning from the mistakes of uh, Guy de Lucien in the years before at the Battle of Hattin, where he just brashly ran into battle, not unprepared, um, he recognizes he's got a far smaller force than Saladin. Um, he's lost a lot of what, horses in uh, the You say far smaller. What are we talking about numbers-wise? Uh, so it's most likely a three-to-one ratio with uh, Richard Lionheart commanding about 15,000, let's say, allied forces. And then uh, Saladin commanding about forty to fifty thousand okay. uh, Muslim forces. Okay. Uh, so he has to organize his army so that it can march fast enough to not get caught by um, Saladin in an unfavorable position, but also so it doesn't lose cohesion. Um, so so fast enough to stay away from any traps. Yeah. But slow enough that it doesn't become a long line of straggling units that can be picked apart piece by piece. Right. So he can still take advantage of the defensive ability of uh, speared infantry with kite shields, and but also still take advantage of uh, clustered mounted knights charging into a okay, mass. Okay. So if if we imagine, uh, so Richard basically creates this rectangle, a large rectangle, with his army. And on the long sides, on either side, the ones that are marching parallel with the ocean, that's going to be made up of his infantry? So it would go, in the ocean, he had a fleet of ships that was following him down, okay. carrying wounded, supplies, Which is a loot. cool move. He's got yeah. this like amphibious force of... Uh, 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 basically a floating city keeping him and his men supplied. Right, and he was allowed that because they had defeated the fleet at Acre. So uh, it just beforehand. goes to show you naval superiority is always 
hugely important. Correct, but he knew he was going to lose that because Saladin was bringing up his fleet from Egypt, okay, uh, as well as another army from Egypt. So he knew he was on the clock. So he again, was, meaning he had to move quickly, right? And so he was also took advantage of a baggage train that would carry a lot of supplies, arms, and armor. Typically, I mean, they had to march armed and you know armored for the most part here because they were on a constant threat. So next to um, the baggage train was the foot soldiers, which were men with spears, axes, long kite shields for um, forming a shield wall. Uh, they were not very armored in the chest. They had maybe, you know, gambeson or some sort of other cloth or a leather to like protect a their... thick jerkin kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, like a okay. leather jerkin, boiled leather. Uh, and they're wearing helmets, you know, they, they hodgepodge, were, no real uniformity. Right. They were wearing, like, kettle helms, uh, iron half helms, uh, similar to that that some mounted men would be wearing, but they were not wearing great helms or... Um, helmets with face plates on them that the mounted men would have. Um, they mostly just had a nasal guard protecting their lower part of their face. Okay. Uh, so they were the rank and file of the army. They would make up the bulk of the force. They were the, the foot soldiers. And then on the outside, you had about 1,200 mounted men spread out in companies of 100 guarding the... Um, or excuse me, they, they were on the... They were in between the baggage train, the infantry, the infantry protecting the uh, the horses from missile fire. They would take the bulk yeah. of it. Uh, but at a moment's notice, the horsemen could move out in front of the infantry to perform a charge uh, without running down their own men. Uh, they would have been armed with, a obviously, a war horse of some sort. They weren't riding mules or the lower-tier horses. They had a lance uh, that they would use couch. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't throw it like their Muslim counterparts would, you know, usually throw their pole arm, or they could use it to try to actually, you know, spear you. Yeah. Um, they also had a hauberk, which is which was a uh, dress of metal rings woven together, uh, called mail. Um, they also had leggings. Uh, they have some French name. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. You can yeah, just yeah, call yeah, them yeah. male leggings. Yep, yep. Uh, they would have been strapped in around the waist. Uh, they also carried, you know, an arming sword, about which would have been about three pounds. They would have carried a heater shield, which would have been about, you know, another five to eight pounds. So all told, the, the men-at-arms, he's probably dealing with 20, 25 pounds of extra gear and clothing. Uh, well, yeah, probably a bit more than that. The gambeson would have been thick and heavy that they would have worn okay. underneath that. Uh, and then they probably wore some sort of, you know, coat over yeah. their chain mail, or not chain mail, the mail dress that they wore, the hauberk. Uh, they also would have a, you know, probably an, at least an eight-foot lance uh, that they would have used So we're talking mass. 60 pounds, maybe. Uh, probably more like 40, around 40 pounds. 40 like, to 50 pounds, you know, somewhere you know, And the weight's a little bit dispersed yeah, since it covers the whole body. Exactly. Okay, so then... Uh, we're talking 100 degree temperatures and very little water, or it's not that it's little amount of water, it's just portioned. Yeah. You're given a certain amount per day of food and water, and the sun and rest is being portioned out too. Although Richard does something interesting in terms of rest, right? Yeah, he marches during the morning when, when it's at 
when the sun's at its lowest, the day is the coolest. Um, and he sets up camp by midday when the sun's at the highest. He camps out. He, um, he you know, feeds his men, waters his men at this point. He yeah. scouts ahead, or, you know, he has men scout ahead, uh, see where the forces are. And then while this is happening, as they're moving down, you know, it takes about two weeks to reach Arsuf. It's a very slow moving Well, they're marching train. at, what, about six hours, maybe a day? Yeah, maybe like five, six hours a day. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, and walking, that's, you know. So, and then the whole way, these guys are getting pelted. Yeah, because, the rear guard. So, yeah. so the, um, the tactic that Saladin and the Muslims used would be to uh, run up with their horses really quickly, Fire off a bunch of arrows and then run away, hoping that the uh, the the European forces would chase off and follow them. Yeah. And then usually that there was another line of Muslim forces behind the original attacker that would swoop in once they got separated from the main force and just pick them off piece by piece. So Richard doesn't do that or doesn't allow his forces to do that because of. Well, he needs to keep formation to just make the whole thing work. Was you need mounted men to support the foot soldiers. You need yeah. foot soldiers to be able to keep up the mountain men, but also to keep up with each other so they can form a somewhat of a shield wall with spears and kite shields, yeah, yeah. shoulder to shoulder. Um, and then they would, and then you would have to have crossbow men supporting the spearmen, which would be make up part of the infantry as well. So the the crossbow men, the whole their whole plan is to try and keep the horse archers far enough away that they don't absolutely obliterate the spearmen. Exactly. Well, or you know, take you know, kill too many horses, so yeah. they had to fire and walk at the same time. So they're kind of like walking backwards half the time here, yeah. firing at the uh, horse archers coming from the enemy cal. You know, the enemy cavalry that would move in, fire. You know, if they're close enough, javelins. If they're far enough away, they're composite bows that had a good, decent range on them. They weren't like a long bow, but they could be fired from horseback and get a good range on them. Okay. So now Arsuf, at the battle, they get to the battlefield pretty much intact. Although, throughout the whole time, the Europeans are suffering casualties, and so are the, the Muslim forces. Mm-hmm. They're, they're suffering little minor casualties. Uh, the Europeans are suffering more from the heat and exhaustion um, that the... the the death by uh, enemy wasn't as significant as it might have been had Richard not had this plan to um, kind of move in a in a square protective formation at Arsuf. What what day of battle? Go ahead and walk me through that. Um, what happens? How do we get there? And then how does it kind of end? Well, it was initiated by. More of the same, pretty much. Yeah. It was the rear guard was at their breaking point. They had lost too many horses to enemy fire. Uh, the men were exhausted in the back because they were, you know, nonstop. And who made up the rear guard? Uh, was uh, the hospitalers. They were one of the... the real... knights? Yeah, knights ho- hospitalers. And they that's were... one of the, the monk warrior groups? Yeah, they were more of the passive religious groups of the Middle Ages. They were more of, you know... Uh, giving protection to pilgrims, treating the sick, okay. that sort of thing. That's where they kind of but, were born of. Right, but they had plenty of experience in the Levant because they had been fighting there for decades. So they had their own keeps and castles there that okay. had been theirs for cent- or decades. So they were familiar with it. They had fought the previous war with Saladin. So that's why they made up the rear as well as 
uh, the Vanguard. So they, yeah, the rear okay, guard and, and Vanguard. And another thing too would be I, I would assume that Richard puts them in these key positions, rear and Vanguard, because they're used to yeah, being disciplined. Yeah, they're most they're uh, disciplined monk orders. Battle so. hardened in okay with the style of fighting. They know how to fight the you know Saladin. They fought him before. Um, and so this this rear guard is just under constant harassment by Saladin's forces, right. getting peppered, losing horses, and they've been continuously asking Richard for reinforcements, and he's denied them. Yeah, well, Garnier uh, de Nablis, which who was the, um, was it he called the headmaster or just the commander of yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. Uh, of the hospitallers. Like had asked him several times that day to charge ahead with his mounted men uh, to basically, you know, deal a blow to the harassing forces. Just of, to clear of him out for a little while. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, he realized he could not sustain many more casualties to his uh, horses or to his men, um, which, you know, Richard, you know, he, he realizes the situation he's in. He, he needs to get to a defensible position. Yeah. Um, preferably, which is smart on his part. You always want to be, you know, more on the defensive. But um, that kind of went to hell when Garnier just decided not to listen to, you know, his commander at that point. And then I guess some his two companies just charged towards the uh, dismounted Saracens. They had dismounted at this point because it would have been now, easier. why would they dismount? Uh, probably they may have had range. Well, it, it, it's hard to fire off many volleys, um, on a moving mass, like uh, of a large mass while you're moving on horseback. So you could fire off far more many, uh, yeah, okay. shafts of arrows. Okay. Uh, to, and you know, they, you know, Saladin sees, or at least his commanders uh, harassing, uh, the crusaders see that they're weak, they're tired, Okay. They're, they're on their last legs. Let's let's and, really and it, give it to them. And they haven't been attacked yet in that no. fashion. So no. Saladin maybe is thinking, it's not going to happen. They're too tired. They're too beaten down. It right. hasn't happened yet, so why would they all of a sudden... Well, they probably only, like, they're only attacking the rear guard for the most part. So yeah. they see they, they only have a couple hundred, you know, mounted men, and then there's thousands of us harassing them. Yeah, what, okay. what can they do? You know, the rest are just uh, foot soldiers, with shields and spears, they okay. they have no horses of their own. So uh, this religious order, they say to hell with it, and they like trying to. Uh, uh, there was a, an ancient chronicler who mentioned that the Mus fighting the Muslims was like with a biting fly, where um, you chase after it and it keeps running, and then as soon as you turn around, it starts biting again. Yeah. And so this guy's had enough of that bullshit. Wants to put an end to it, so he and his monks, uh, his hospitallers, go at Saladin's forces. Now, they are charging horse and on foot? Uh, well, initially it's just the knights. Uh, I believe once Richard hurt, you know, got wind of what was going on in his rear, and he brought all his forces to bear on Saladin, okay. that infantry finally caught up to clean up, you know, okay, what yep, was happening yep. behind him. But yeah, they were able to, to once Richard the Lionheart got wind of what was happening, launch consecutive um, cavalry attacks. So you know they would charge forward, uh, they would lose their initial momentum after a little while, and then they would fall back 
um, form up again, go in for another mass charge. They would lose cohesion, so they were back out. And once again, so it was like a, a wheel. So they would just keep wheeling around and attacking, attacking. And, you know, against lightly armored uh, Muslim forces, they, you know, they obviously have no no system of withstanding okay, yeah. a full frontal uh, Western European night, like nightly charge uh, with lance and shield and heavy horse. Whereas the, you know, the, the whole Eastern style is mobility is you move away Swift. and then you yep. fire at range. You're not used to close combat shield, sword, ax, you know, anything you so have, a, get in your face uh, and just hack away. Hit and run versus uh, a slash and bash. Yeah, you would have the initial collision, which was traumatic yep. to, you know, a mass force. It was traumatic. It would, you know, quite often break the morale of whoever was on the receiving end. That was the idea behind a mass charge. It wasn't so effective. You know, you, you stick a lance on the guy and your horse stops. You know, you, you're basically... You, you got to whip out your, your arming sword or your yeah. axe, your mace, whatever it is, and then you start hacking away. Your horse is trampling men. So it's quite the, you know, it's, it's, it's a very traumatic experience. So, you know, as you would expect, these thousands of men that were dismounted start to flee. Yeah. Basically, within, you know, the first hour here, they send the whole of the Muslim army in a rout. They reform. And then so Saladin's able to get them to stop and reform. Or yeah, or I believe it was his son or nephew or one okay, of the two so was some, able to form up. Some commander in right. the, the Muslim forces. So they were able to form back up. But by then it was too late. Uh Richard had all his mounted men ready to go in for a second charge, and once again they broke through. Uh the Crusaders did lose I think one notable person, uh, I think he was Flemish. I, I cannot pronounce his name. I cannot. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the French and Flems had <laughs> some Flems. The Flems, the Flemish. Yeah. Oh, they <laughs> they that, had some difficult be an names. Email from yeah. some <laughs> the Flems. Uh, yeah, they have some difficult names to pronounce. Anyways, so there was one notable on the uh, on on the European side that died. Uh, and then, obviously, in the chaos of that battle on the Muslim side, there were many losses, many thousands of men So died. we're talking of a force of forty to 50,000 Muslim or Saracen for, uh, men. We're talking, what, like 10, maybe Anywhere between 12, 5 and 10. I know it's kind of okay. hard with yep. you know medieval chroniclers. And then what are we talking about for the European losses? European, I guess, was about you know around a thousand men uh, of okay. you know you know and then, for that day or from the beginning of their month? Uh, just from that day. I mean, I'm sure they okay. lost so, many hundreds and thousands at the siege of Acre, and then on the so we're they, between Acre and and Arsuf, they probably lost somewhere around you know five thousand, seven thousand. Uh they they definitely lost thousands in the siege itself and itself okay. and then lost hundreds on the way down okay so yeah. all right so uh a fairly resounding victory for the crusaders yeah but not decisive though he not you know, decisive. you know uh well so hold Saladin. on let's um let's just recap or, or regroup here and then we'll uh we'll push on towards the end Okay, so Arsuf is a uh, 
it is a resounding victory for the Crusaders, but not necessarily a decisive victory in terms of the, uh, the overall strategy of Richard and his capture of Jerusalem or attempt at capturing Jerusalem. So from Arsuf, the Muslim forces kind of back off a little bit, trying to recuperate and recover. And Richard and his army still have to try and get to Jerusalem. So they begin uh, to march south again, eventually reaching Jaffa. And then what happens from there? There's basically, there's this um, fork in the road. The two, two armies basically have to decide what they're going to do. Uh, Richard moves towards Jerusalem, but logistics kind of crap out, and he stops about 12 miles from the city and has to turn around, correct? Yeah, he has to turn around. He does not have the men, resources, or the um, supply lines to maintain a siege on Jerusalem that Saladin has now fallen back to with about 30,000 men. He's got more men coming up from Egypt as well as a fleet preparing to set sail or has already set sail. So... uh, so Richard counts his chickens. He's not liking what he's seeing, and he realizes he, you know, he's either going to lose his army, lose the entire war, or he needs to call it good and just establish the states uh, that he's already okay, conquered. Okay, so whatever he's conquered, make good on, strengthen right. those, and yep. then maybe come back another day. Right. Get get you know. Live to fight another day right. kind of thing. Right, uh, accomplish uh, free movement for pilgrims to go to Jerusalem. Okay, yep. And call it good with that. And so now uh, Saladin's kind of won. Richard has uh, won in that they've they've taken Acre and certain parts of the Holy Lands. But overall, he's failed. And uh, he kind of has to turn tail a little, little bit. And uh, he's basically he's trying to get back to... Uh, his kingdom, England, and being kind of a hot-headed, uh, stubborn guy, he decides he wants to go by land, and so he's going to go by land. Now, that's a big problem, correct? Yeah, uh, he did not clearly did not travel with a large army. He uh, was captured in the Holy Roman Empire by, uh, I believe, uh, King Barbarossa, or Emperor Barbarossa's son, uh, I forget his title. He had he had one of those German titles. Uh, so he was captured. He was ransomed for about 120 pounds of 120 thousand pounds of silver, which in today's money is like 26 million dollars. Yeah, we uh, just so uh, nobody gets upset if our math is wrong. We basically said uh, one pound of silver is equivalent to 12 troy ounces, and on the modern or t- on today's market. Uh, one ounce of silver is worth fourteen dollars and yeah, fifty nine cents. Fifty nine cents, which, if you kind of extrapolate that all out, comes out to this insane amount of money that he was uh, ransomed for, which at the time was, I believe, double the amount of of England's entire GDP. Yeah, something along those lines. Something yeah. to that yeah. effect. And then the crazy part is then. Uh, Richard's brother, who was the main reason Richard was returning, was to go and put his brother in his place because he was trying to get all the. Um, he was basically trying to start trouble in his in his backyard. Richard's brother offered the Holy Roman Emperor another fifty thousand 
pounds of silver for, uh, for him to keep his brother Richard in prison for another year. So that family dynamic is a little weird. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot going on. It definitely there. starts with uh, Henry's, you know, uh, Richard's issues with his father and then trying to divvy it up the uh, lands of his father with his other brothers. Uh, he had an elder brother uh, who died. You know, he wasn't even supposed to become king. That was Henry, too, right? Uh, I don't know if he was Henry the Third. No, I'm not quite sure. No, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's he had a, an older a Henry, brother. Then there was a yeah. Richard. Then there's Jeffrey or Joffrey. Something like then that. There's John. John. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he's trying. You know, so he's got to get back to England to straighten things out because he had put two men in charge to look over the finances of his yeah. kingdom. It wasn't just John, but obviously John's part of the royal family. I think he was. Um, Prince of Ireland and those lands, yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that. And then that he was making sense. moves to take, you know, yeah, uh, his French being holdings. Yeah, sneaky little shit. Right, exactly. So Richard eventually dies of... He dies at a siege in France. Uh, it was a pointless siege. Uh, it wasn't, no, it wasn't a pointless siege, but it was part of the campaign to take back the lands that uh, Philip had taken from him. Uh, okay. When he was away on crusade, uh, you know, so he he was, I guess, trying to storm the walls, took a crossbow bolt, and died from his wound. Okay. Even though he didn't need to participate in the siege, it wasn't of a city, it wasn't uh, for any major importance. It was, it was just pro- part of the uh, medieval process of taking lands. You yep. take the lands by taking castle by castle. Okay, so then, uh, so Richard dies, kind of a unnecessary death. Even though it was unnecessary, he's still, even though he never learned, apparently, according to some sources, never learned English, and only spent six months of his entire kingship in England itself, he uh, is remembered as one of the great kings of England and uh, has a massive, awesome statue out in front of the House of Commons or House of Lords or whatever in uh, the Houses of Parliament. So... Uh, Richard dies, and then back in the Levant, uh, Saladin, who we didn't really touch enough on because we're running kind of long here, but Saladin's this brilliant military genius who was also, curiously enough, this kind of uh, quintessential knight. He had this weird, fair courteousness about him where uh, Richard, uh, he finds out that Richard's come down with a fever, and so Saladin sends him snow from the mountains. Uh, he's sent couriers to get snow for uh, Richard to put on his brow to bring his fever down. Yeah, he's very courteous, and he's very hospitable. Um, <clears throat> you know, it stands in stark contrast to how the Crusaders were when they were in kind of, you, know, you could call it his home turf. Yeah, yeah, not... yeah. There's this weird... Um, it's kind of like uh, he he is being kind of a uh, hospitable, courteous host. Yeah. Even though these people are trying to kill him. Yeah, more chivalrous than the supposedly chivalrous yeah, knights. Exactly. Um, so Saladin he stays in power only for a few short years after Arsuf. I believe he dies in eleven. 93, something like that, 1187. Uh, you know, almost at the turn of the century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, after Arsuf, he dies about three years later. Um, he dies of illness. And then the various states in the Middle East kind of break apart again and start to 
try and divvy up and, and uh, scrabble for power. Um, and what we eventually see with the Crusades is neither side really wins. Uh, the Muslim states eventually regain control over the entire uh, Levant uh, or a large portion of it. The holy orders of the Templars and Hospitallers, they end up in um, Rhodes and then in Malta, uh, later to be kicked out by the uh, Ottomans and then kicked out by Napoleon. Uh, and then I believe the Hospitallers still exist in some form in the Vatican today. Um, so uh, the Muslims eventually retake all the uh, control of all the land, but what... Uh, what the Europeans and the Crusaders gain is a vast amount of knowledge. Uh, they might not have ha had any territory to show for their crusading, but they had an incredible amount of access to information that was lost after the fa fall of Rome. So the Muslims are trading uh, land for knowledge in, in medication, mathematics, architecture, um, in artistic endeavors, in military endeavors, the, the Europeans come away far more, well, I mean, depends on that, your religious yeah. stance, but in my mind, they come away far and away the, uh, the victors in terms of basically just stealing a ton of incredible information that was kept uh, safe in Baghdad and Damascus and, yeah. um, and Alexandria, all these places. Well, this also set forward a course of events in Europe that would change uh, Western civilization for centuries. Um, due to due to Richard going on crusade, and then Philip also going on crusade, but then deciding not to uh, or not to stay for the siege of Jerusalem, he went back to then start his conquest of modern day France, uh, which put strain on you know the English income, you could say, and then Richard's subsequent uh, imprisonment and then his, um, basically the bounty that had to be, not his bounty, but his ransom that had to be paid uh, by the English kingdom bankrupted the upper classes as well as the lower classes. Uh, then he died. Then it was John's problem to deal with the financial situation in England for which he had to, you know, further tax his nobility, who then revolted in uh, several or a couple barren, barren wars against the king and his uh, loyalists. And from that, we got Magna Carta, which is kind of the foundation of, of the entire uh, you Western, know, Western democratic law. Yeah, I mean, yeah. basically, every, it's probably the single most important um, uh moment outside of the signing of the Decla Declaration of Independence yeah. in terms of uh, Western governance yeah. in the last, since the Roman Empire. Yeah, it sets a, it sets a precedent from really also the Greek city-states, you know, because they had a system of democracy uh, in their civilization that, you know, was only open to the upper echelon yeah. of society, but it, it you know, expanded uh, necessary rights to at least a portion of of the population, and then from there, that was expanded to include the lower classes, uh, and it, it just skyrocketed huh. the West from there. And then also, you, you, you can even go further um, where 
with Arsuf, you've got this weird little battle that doesn't really matter. But with the the effect that it, it's it's hard to imagine a world in which uh, Jerusalem was taken by Richard. If if Richard had been able to capture Jerusalem without the assistance of the church, really, I mean the church that was behind it, but they weren't really a part of it. Uh, think about that, an English-controlled, because it would have been an English city, an English-controlled Jerusalem. I mean, it's just interesting to, to play out where that would have stuck around. Well, it depends if he um, granted it to Guy de Lucien, because then, you know, maybe they would have set up a system of vassalage there. Whereas, maybe, you know, maybe, yeah. Uh, Jerusalem would have been added to the, you know, the um, Plantagenet, you know, empire, uh, that was of you know consistent of you know Wales, Ireland, England, Aquitaine, you know Normandy. Aquitaine, Normandy, uh, Poitiers, yeah, you Calais, know those lands, yeah, yeah, central yeah. lands in France and southern France. Yeah, it's just interesting because then you've got a uh, a weirdly distant but highly valuable and important province. Um, all right, so uh, okay, so that about wraps us up. You got any last? Thoughts on uh, Arsuf on the uh, Third Crusade? Anything? Any one point that you found pretty interesting? Um, it's it's definitely a a pivotal you know pivotal point in European history because of all the different alliances and um, consequences of the taxation to fund the war uh, changed you know the face of Europe forever. You know you see the you know, the resurgence of a French uh, state with the reconquest of many French territories. You see, you know, obviously the Magna Carta. Um, and then obviously the Holy Roman Empire became much richer. They were not blooded as much as the other yeah, territories. Yeah, they got away pretty clean you know, on that. You know, they only left behind a handful of men compared to those who marched down. Uh, and then you also see... Um, uh, continuance of desire for expansion by the Muslims who would soon retake the Levant and then from there harass Eastern Europe for another hundreds, you know, hundreds of years, you know, with the formation of the Ottoman Empire who... Eventually getting right up to uh, next week's topic of discussion, which is the uh, Siege of Vienna. Yep. Um, all right, so every time we interview somebody, we have two questions. First off, if you could be... At any battle, what battle in history? It doesn't have to be anything to do with the Crusades. Just oh. be there. Oof. Uh, I, I guess you know you could say just to see battle of Sterling Bridge. That would have been, Sterling you know, Sterling Bridge. Yeah. You know, well, well, if I was to fight it, oh, if I was just to see it, if I was just to see it, I, like, I'm talking like a bird's eye view. Like bird's eye view is that one battle? Like a lot of people think Agincourt, like. That one mm. battle where if you were floating above it like this angel kind of godlike cloud, oh, that's or hard. Because you get to see the mechanics. Because there's always, for me, I'm always like, how the how the hell did that actually happen? Uh, yeah, I I know there's probably some battle that's escaping my mind where there's just this great tactical feat. Yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. obviously, yeah, uh, battles like Agincourt. Uh, Sterling Bridge. You got to pick one. I'm uh, oh, trying to think. I, I guess Agincourt would be interesting just to watch tens of thousands of mounted men charge, you know, just a handful of ragtag, you know, longbowmen and then a handful of 
dismounted men at arms. That would have been interesting to watch. You know, yeah. that's you know obviously that's been mo- made into a play. It's been made into uh, a mo- you know countless. movies since then. And now on that vein, what is one movie that people should watch this weekend? Could be about history. Could be about warfare. Could be just something you saw. But I'm something that you think is really well done, well made in terms of like accuracy. Ooh, that's hard to say. Um, that is really, really hard to say. Um, you know, accuracy in the sense of costume. I would definitely go watch Kingdom of Heaven. It, I find it to be entertaining. It's got some great battle scenes. A little exaggerated, but yeah. the combat itself is like. It looks pretty good. The costumes themselves look, they're great. Um, It's definitely interesting cinematically. It's not a very accurate historical film of like the events and, you know, life itself there. Uh, They do touch upon like a few topics of greed and of um, bloodthirstiness on the part of, uh, of the, you know, then... Uh, men and uh, commanders of the holy forces yeah, yeah, before yeah. The, the guy with the Templars or whatever. Right, the yeah, the the, the 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 bishop. Yeah. You know, they thought they were invincible because they had you know they had God on their side, and then they all get massacred. So also, you know, it's the first time I ever saw Ava Green, who is gorgeous. Is, it, is that Queen Isabella? Yeah, she's yeah, the woman yeah. from uh, Casino Royal, the James Bond. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And then uh, there's that upcoming Netflix film, The Outlaw King, which follows oh, the yeah, events yeah, of yeah, um, yeah, yeah. of uh, the Scottish War for Independence. Uh, that's that looks and pretty high quality. Also, for you ladies out there, apparently Chris Pine is a Chris. Yeah, Chris Pine. Yeah, Chris Pine shows off his pecker in that yeah. one. So there's a, another reason to watch that movie <laughs> if you. Uh, if you're of that persuasion. Yeah. Okay. Angelo, thanks for joining us. All good information. Very, very fun. Nice talking to you. All right, man. Have a good one.